Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. One of the more heartbreaking stories, in fact, one of the most heartbreaking stories, I think, in the Bible can be found in the book of 2 Samuel, starting in chapter 13, and it, it extends really all the way through chapter 19. And the central figure in that story is a young man by the name of Absalom. Absalom was the son of King David by one of his wives, a woman named Micah. He was a handsome man, the Bible says. He eventually kind of grew to be his father's favorite. He wasn't just an attractive man. He was, he was charismatic and a high-capacity leader, uh, demonstrated that very, very early in his life. And a lot of that was probably because he got to witness his father growing the kingdom of Israel. He was born when the capital of Israel was still Hebron, prior to the, fact that the time when David had relocated it to Jerusalem. And so he, he was allowed through his life to witness all of that movement, all of that development that eventually ended in what historians to this day will continue to call Israel's first golden age. And he, no doubt, had aspirations to follow in his father's footsteps, and he emerges again as his father's favorite. But something happens really early in this narrative that turns tragic, and then will turn the father against the son. Absalom had a sister named Tamar, and he had a half-brother by one of his father's other wives. His, that man's name was Amnon. And Amnon feigned sickness on one occasion to try to get his half-sister Tamar into the bedroom under the cover of her caring for him, basically being his medical provider. But once she finds her way into the bedroom, he grabs and attacks and brutally rapes her. Absalom learns of this and reports it to his father. And although David feigns outrage at this, he eventually proves to do really nothing about this sexual assault that has happened within the confines of his own house and his own kingdom. And so that bitterness wells up and continues to well up within the heart of Absalom as he begins to plot revenge against his half-brother Amnon. And that plotting continues for like two years until he waits for exactly the right time and he sends men to murder Amnon while he is drunk. That, as you can imagine, creates all matter of drama and conflict and division within the family, and most most distinctly this division of father against son. And over time, Absalom's rebellion will turn from personal, it will get wider, and it will become national in scope. He will raise an army against his own father. And all of this culminates in something called the Battle of Ephraim Wood where David's general, a man by the name of Joab, comes upon Absalom while he is caught in tree branches, and he finally has his opportunity. And even though David has said, he is my son, he may be in rebellion against the state, he may be an enemy of the state, but he is my son, do not touch him. David's general Joab makes a military assessment, a threat assessment, if you will. He determines that Absalom is too much of a threat to the state to continue living. And so he thrusts a spear into the chest of that son, killing him. And at the end of that story is this very tragic outpouring of grief that we read about in 1 Samuel 
David crying out over the dead body of his own son, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Some of you may feel grief similar to that right now. You're not alone. And neither was David. In fact, if you back up uh, several generations prior to this story, you'll find the story of another grieving father. This man's name was Eli. Eli has two sons. Their names are Hophni and Phinehas. These men are supposed to follow in their father's footsteps as priests, but instead they use their office and their power for their own advantage. Eating the prime cuts of meat, for example, that were supposed to be dedicated to the altar and the sacrifice, they consumed those themselves, using their position and their office to commit adultery and abuse their power uh, for sexual favors with the women that were gathered at the entrance to the sanctuary. Meanwhile, as all of this is happening, Eli has taken another young boy into his home, a young man named Samuel. Samuel is to be trained as a priest, and God speaks through this young boy to tell this grieving father that his sons are going to be killed in battle by the Philistines, and that furthermore, the Ark of the Covenant, that piece of furniture central to Jewish worship that, that symbolized the very presence of God among his people, it would be stolen by the Philistines. And Eli warns his sons about this, and yet they continue in their evil behavior in spite of his warnings. And those warnings are stern. We find those in 1 Samuel chapter 2. We read there, and he said to them, why do you do such things? For I heard of your evil dealings from all of these people. Boys, what is wrong with you? What are you doing? Maybe some of you have been there. You are not alone. Neither is David, neither is Eli. In fact, in Luke chapter 15 in the New Testament, Jesus will tell us a parable that while not historical, certainly would have reflected the reality for a lot of parents in the first century. A man had two sons, as the story goes, and the youngest of the two came to his father and he says, give me the share of the inheritance that's coming to me. Sometimes that, that request doesn't hit us in the 21st century the way it should, because in the 21st century, we're, we're perfectly fine with giving our children the inheritance while they're still alive. And what we so often forget is that was an unheard of thing in the first century. So when you go to your father and you say, I don't want to wait on your death, I want the money now, I want the real estate now, I want all of that other stuff now, what you're saying is, dad, I wish you were dead. This is what this kid tells his father. He takes those things because his father actually grants in sorrow that request. And as we read in the middle of that story in Luke 15, 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Four men, three lost children. They're not the only ones we read about in Scripture, although they are some of the more prominent ones. And I would imagine that as I share this story and these three stories, in fact, that there are a few people in front of me who can relate because you've got a kid who's breaking your heart. I would imagine also that there's some young parents in the room and your kids haven't gotten to the age yet where rebellion is defined beyond, you know, going and getting food that they're not supposed to or being out of their bed past bedtime. And you're thinking to yourself, you've got all the T's crossed and the I's dotted in your own mind, and you're thinking, not my kid. And this pastor fears that you might just be a few years away from shock if you're not careful with those kinds of things. And for many of you, as you compare these stories with your own, there's a verse from Scripture 
that haunts you. In fact, it's been haunting you since this entire series began. And some of you may not even remember where it's at, but you know what it says. It's in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Some of you can't get to sleep because this is in the back of your mind. You read this and what you think you hear God saying is, you know what, if you had just done things right, your kid would have turned out okay. You you may have even heard some well-meaning brothers and sisters say that. They don't cry with you, they don't suffer with you, they don't put their arms around you, they look at you and they mean well, but what they're saying just sounds so heartless. You've got a child that has rebelled, you've got a kid that's breaking your heart. Meanwhile, you've got somebody whose kids seem to be doing fine, therefore it seems like maybe they're doing some things that you aren't doing and you're comparing yourself with them, and simultaneously they're looking at you going, well, if you'd just do it the way I did it, or if you'd just do this, or if you would just do that, And there's a side of you that would be woefully annoyed at them if you weren't simultaneously so terrified that they might be right. Because again, you keep being haunted by Solomon's words in the 22nd chapter of Proverbs, and you keep asking yourself in the middle of all this, what did I do wrong? Let me say a couple of things to you, and then I I want to try as best I can to just provide some guidance from God's Word on what you should do. And for some of you, kids are all fine and everything's going well. Just hold this one in your back pocket in case you need it one day, okay? Let me say a couple of things to you. Number one, Proverbs is a book of wise principles. That's its purpose. It was never intended to be a promise book. I hate those things, by the way, in Christian bookstores. Bible promise book, because it's overwhelmingly filled with Proverbs, which were never intended to be promises. What you have here are principles, because it's true that if you will do what Proverbs 22 says, if you will apply the principles, for that matter, in Proverbs as a whole, your life and the lives of those you influence are, have a much greater chance of being prosperous. That's, actually, that's true. But equally true is that there's no guarantee in this. In fact, there isn't a single text of Scripture that, particularly with regard to parenting, guarantees a particular outcome. One comedian put it this way. He said, if you want to describe parenting using a metaphor, the best one would be take your bank account, empty it, get on a plane, fly to Vegas, go to the first poker table you find, and press everything you've ever worked for in your entire life in on a hand you haven't been dealt yet. That's parenthood. You have no idea what you're getting into, do you? For those of you who have been parents longer than 10 or 15 years, you're like, yep, that's exactly right. And for some of you who have the little ones at home, they're still pooping themselves, but you haven't figured this out yet, but it's coming. Trust me, it's coming. And this still haunts you. When you ask, what did I do wrong? The answer is maybe nothing. Maybe nothing. In many cases of the rebellious children, are to blame themselves. See, the same Bible passage, the same scriptures that contain Proverbs 22, 6, that say to the parents, if you will train up a child in the way he should go, when he is old, he will not depart from it, also contain these words for the children. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. That's from Proverbs 13. In fact, under the Old Covenant, we read this. This is the spirit behind all of that. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father and mother, and all the people shall say, Amen, which means so be it. 
So it has been said, so let it be known, so let it be done. You are cursed when you dishonor them. In fact, within that covenant, uh, it was actually acceptable under extreme cases of rebellion for you to take your children to the elders of the community. And if the elders determined that the offense was serious enough and the child still refused to repent, the elders could recommend that that child be stoned to death in front of the entire community. And the rationale for that is given in Deuteronomy 21.21. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now let me clarify something before we go on. Jesus has come. Jesus has lived. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen again. And in doing so, Jesus has fulfilled all of the promises of God in that old covenant, which means, among other things, and for for those of you who are reading that and hearing that story and thinking about your rebellious son and maybe perhaps doing this, no, you can't stone your kid. I know you felt like it on occasion. Uh, That's not permissible, not under this new covenant. But I share that with you to, to kind of give you a sense of the underlying spirit of all of this. What is it that God is is pointing us to here? See, when you go back and you examine in detail the heartbreaking stories in Scripture, you find out a couple of things. You find out, number one, the parents were not perfect, that they did some horrible things. You find out that, yes, Absalom made his own bed, but a lot of that was caused by dysfunction in the home for a king and a father who wouldn't report an assault, who wouldn't deal justly, even in his own home, let let alone his own kingdom. You discover that in many cases, like with King David, there was sin on the part of the parent that did in fact transfer generationally and it manifested itself in dysfunction in subsequent generations. But then other times, you will find that in spite of a parent's best efforts, a kid's going to go off the rails. So here's my premise for the rest of this message. When you come to me and you go, Pastor, what did I do wrong? The most truthful answer I can give you is I honestly have no idea. I don't know. Maybe something, maybe nothing. Maybe it was a combination of all of these things. But here's what I do know. I know there is nothing redemptive about you continuing to beat yourself up for it. Nothing. I know that's the truth. If there's been dysfunction in your life and you're aware of it, you've identified it, and you know that it's affected your kids, you need to repent of it, you need to give it to Jesus who died for it, and you need to live in freedom. We're going to talk about how to do that in just a minute. But for many of you, there's nothing to repent of. You did. Not that you didn't make some mistakes, but you did what you could do. And you had a child who made their own choice. And that's where I want to say something else to you. There are some things you can do regardless of where you find yourself in this scenario. Right here and right now. Four things. The first is this. You just need to relinquish the guilt. Get rid of the guilt. You know, guilt seems to be playing an increasing role in parenting. Have you noticed that? And piling onto that is, you know, with our access to the internet and all manner of media outlets and resources that we can look at is, is so much more information about what our infants need and what our toddlers need and what our grade school children need and what our teenagers need and what our adult children still living in our basement need. And we wonder to ourselves, I, I don't know what to do with all of this. And here's the thing. If you're my age or older, you've been around long enough to know this stuff changes all the time, doesn't it? Right? It just does. Yeah. Breastfeeding or formula, spanking or timeouts, 
uh, play dates or no play dates, this preschool or that preschool, and you go insane talking about this stuff, wondering about the right thing. And meanwhile, the culture around you is continually shifting and changing based on what they recommend you to do. And so by the time you get the kid out of diapers and into grade school, you've got option A that your pediatrician has recommended, that all your Christian friends have recommended, that that book you read that you checked out in the Christian bookstore recommended. And so you're just, you're going with option A. That's what you're going to do. And then lo and behold, they become a teenager and you start reading new research that comes out and everything from your pediatrician to your child psychologist to the mommy bloggers are going, option A was a horrible idea. You need option B. And you're going, too late for my kid. And what happens though? Even though there's nothing you can help, even though you did everything you did to get all of the information you could at the moment, to do the best thing at that moment for your child, even though option B might be wrong and probably will be proven wrong 20 years from now, what do you do, moms, dads, especially moms? You project all that guilt right back here, don't you? It's right on me, and it does you absolutely no good. And here, here's what I want to do. This is so unsophisticated. Anybody could say what I'm about to say to you, but let this brother in Christ encourage you this morning with one passage that does away with this all. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Get rid of the guilt. See, with repentance comes a shedding of the guilt. Jesus has bled for that. It's done. Stop beating yourself up over either things you have legitimately done wrong or even things that you think you have done wrong, but you really don't have anything to apologize for, and you're beating yourself up night and day wondering what happened, and, and, and perhaps, perhaps nothing. Understand, in the midst of all of that, whatever your situation, that your sins are forgiven, and so can your child's be. Your child's sins can be forgiven. God doesn't want you wallowing around in your own guilt, especially if the blame doesn't fall on you to begin with. And, and, and even in those cases where there is some blame that could legitimately fall on you, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Applied to parenting, that means that God made him who made no mistakes, who did nothing malevolent, intentionally or unintentionally, to bear the cost of everything that I've done that was boneheaded with regard to my kid so that I could become precisely the kind of parent that will build a warrior. All of that is in the heart and soul of the gospel. And if you turn from your sins and you, you put your faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that promise is for you. And here's the other good news. That promise is also for your child. That rebellious kid if you will just relinquish the guilt and start living as though you are free from that, you're going to have a kid that's going to start noticing something different about you. Relinquish the guilt. Number two, stand your ground. Now, this is tough. Out of the four, I don't know which is going to be tougher for you. Some of you, it's going to be number two. Some of you, it's going to be number four. We'll wait and see when we get there. But number two is tough because we have emerged inside a culture that is teaching us that tolerance and acceptance is love. Nothing short of full and complete affirmation of anything and everything anybody wants to do that makes them happy is love. 
Um, there's a the Hebrew scholars have a word for this, and I won't repeat it because you're not supposed to in church. But you know what I'm talking about. Uh, there's an older lady that that I've known for nearly all my life. Wonderful, godly woman. She's got a, a several sons. One, I think it's her middle kid. Uh, and he's a baby boomer. And no, no offense to you, those of you who are part of the baby boom generation. I know there's a lot of you out there, and I know, you know, I know you gave us Botox and all of that. We're grateful for, we think, for that sort of thing. But here's, you know, you guys are also. It was your generation, not necessarily you individually, but it really was the boomers that started convincing all of the Western world that everything, the value of everything, is defined in terms of happiness. What's going to bring me fulfillment? What's going to bring me happiness? Uh, this man brings a woman home that he intends to marry, and this older lady that I've known all my life welcomes her, as she should, into the home and feeds her and has a wonderful relationship with her. The, the only real issue is that this woman is not only not a follower of Jesus, she's an ardent adherent to another world religion. And so this older lady says to her now in, in his 50s, son, look, I, I, I love you, I, I loved your I loved your former wife before she passed away. I know you're going through a lot of grief. I love this young lady that you brought home that's also in her 50s, and I, I get that, that there's a lot of happiness there, a lot of fulfillment. Um, I, I don't want to interrupt any of that, but son, I kind of have to. I, I, you know I can't approve of this. Get, can you imagine what the son said? Mom, I figured you'd want me to be happy because, of course, that's what life has become about, hasn't it? Nothing short of full-throated affirmation. Anything less than that is hatred in the eyes of our culture. And here's the thing. This woman did it superbly, all except for one statement that she did make that I remember because she was telling me this story over Christmas. Mom, I thought you would want me to be happy. To which she responded, son, your happiness doesn't mean a whole lot if your new wife ends up in hell. Maybe there was a little more winsome way to bring that up. I, I get that. But let me tell you what this woman was doing. All right? We, we, we live in a world that, that we've, we, we so focus obsessively on tact that we've completely forgotten about truth. And, and what this woman was saying echoes... God's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Son, I love you. I love this woman. She's always welcome here. I'm not throwing up walls. I'm, not bad. I'm just telling you, this isn't right. It's going to hurt you. It's going to damage her. It's, this is, you may not even understand how that happens right now because the romance has sort of blinded you. But this is not something that you need to do if you're going to follow Jesus. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? She loved her son. That's why she told him that. And that's countercultural and counterintuitive, isn't it? This is not something that we like to bring up because we've, we've, we've been conditioned. Again, acceptance, full affirmation is the highest value. Never, ever, ever make anybody uncomfortable with the choices they've made, especially if it's your children. Because after all, it's our, this is our children. They should love us. They should feel happy. They should feel secure. They should be, that's, those are all important things. They are not the highest value. 
Um, I deal at the national level often, and sometimes unfortunately with, with some of the rhetoric of the day, that teaches us that affirmation is the highest value. And anything less than full affirmation is just hatred. And if you tell anybody that this might not be the wisest decision, you, you're going you're gonna to get yourself in trouble, not just with the cultural elites, but with pretty much anybody who thinks that you've poured vinegar into somebody's Cheerios. That's the day and the age in which we live. And some of the worst approaches to this come from Christian people who have divided their Bibles up between red letters and black letters. I don't know if you've heard of these people or not, but they will basically say, well, those are the words of Paul, and, and, and Paul isn't saying the same thing Jesus is saying. Jesus, let me tell you a couple of things. Those black letters were inspired by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who is God, very God, to the same level that the red letters were inspired by the second person of the Trinity, who is God, very God. And the second person and the third person are equal. Therefore, the red letters and the black letters are equal. It is all God's Word. Every bit of it. Uh, but moreover, this the nonsense of somebody going, well, that's not what Jesus would do. Jesus would never condemn anybody. Jesus would never, would, he would just never tell anybody anything was wrong. Jesus would never condemn anything. Jesus wouldn't be judgy like that. Jesus, Jesus. It makes me think some of you have never read Jesus. Can I show you some words from Jesus? Look at these from Luke chapter 12, directly from the lips of Jesus Christ. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Those are red letters. What do you do with this? This is what I mean by stand your ground. And this is tough. Hang with me because I'm going to talk about unconditional love in just a minute and what that looks like. I'm not telling you to anathematize or condemn ultimately your child. I'm, just, I'm not doing that. But, but when, you're, when you're, when that kid comes home from Christmas with a boyfriend or a girlfriend from college or something like that, do you prepare one bedroom or two? Have I gone to meddling now? Which do you do? Here, here's the thing. Your choice, and this is just one of a multiplicity of examples, but your choice in a moment like that is, would you rather them be happy with you and leave on New Year's Day thinking, well, that fornication thing must not be a real big deal to God. I mean, mom and dad didn't even mention it. Or would you rather there be tension in your home that you can cut through with love? See, the other side of that is you don't have to make it all about that. You can still sit around and eat Christmas dinner and open gifts and love each other and talk about a million other things other than the thing you disagree on while still holding your ground. That's actually possible. That's actually possible. But what are you going to do? Because in moments like that, or any other moments, some of you got scenarios in your minds right now, and it doesn't look anything like that, but it looks like something else, and it is very clear in your mind, I know what the Word of the Lord teaches, my kid's doing this other thing. 
do I really want to create that kind of tension? Our dear friends at the Hope Dealer Project who are working with us on the opioid crisis will tell you, and many of them with experience. In fact, all of them is our moms who either have someone who has in the past or is currently struggling with addiction, or they have in grief, regrettably lost a child to opioid addiction. And every single one of them to the woman will tell you, if you ain't making the addict mad, you ain't doing it right. And you do it because you love that individual. So what are you doing? And here's the thing. Those women, when they say that, are echoing the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 12. Jesus is saying, for some of you, you have children who are being rebellious. You need to understand, they're not just rebelling against you. They're, they're ultimately rebelling against me. And so as a parent, you now have to make a choice. Are you with me or are you with your kid? Doesn't mean you can't love your kid, be with him. I'm just talking about on the issue, whatever it is, are you going to stand with me? Some of you have parents who have not yet given me their lives if you're the kid. You have. And it's going to cause some sharp division in your home. Who is your Lord? Is it ultimately me? There are times when that choice is clear. Now, there are other times... When you have a child that becomes an adult, they make a decision and you would have made a different one. That's them having a different opinion than you. They're not always going to agree with you. They're, they're their own person. I'm not talking about that. But what I am speaking of are moments when there is a child in open rebellion against the Lord. You've got to make a choice. You must stand your ground. But that standing of the ground can literally turn into hatred if it's not also coupled with this other thing. You've got to continue to love. Let's go back to Luke chapter 15. This rebellious son, having dishonored his father in the ultimate way, he's wasted away one-third of the entire estate. He smells like pigs. He thinks to himself, my father's household slaves live better than this. I'm going to go back and see if maybe I can get in the back door. I don't even expect to be a son anymore. And that's when we read the following words in Luke 15, 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Read between the lines here just a minute, mom and dad, what's happening? Why, why, how's it possible for this man to see his son from afar off? He's been looking, hadn't he? He has not stopped. He may have stood his ground, but he loves that kid. And I can imagine every morning when he gets up, every night before he goes to bed, he goes to the farthest perimeter of his estate, north, south, east, west. He looks as far as his naked eye will allow him to look all the way to the horizon. And there is one and only one permeating question on his mind. Where's my boy? That's love. That waits that always leaves the door open. That desire for your child's good never goes away, and it shouldn't. Your heart remains broken for them. But this dad, he didn't just have a broken heart. He kept looking, and he kept hoping. And when that hope finally appeared on the horizon, he felt compassion, and he ran, and he embraced, and he kissed. Four things that were completely stripping a middle-aged man in the first century of his dignity, all of it. I'm going to run to you. 
That's the posture of a loving parent, that no matter what they do, no matter how far they stray, and by the way, that's the posture of a loving church as well. No matter how painful they make your life, no matter what they steal from you, no matter what they do to you, stand your ground, but don't let that be mutually exclusive from unconditional love. Our rebellious children need to know that there are parents who love them, and there's no more clear way to prove your love is unconditional than when you demonstrate it at their most rebellious moments. That should be true. Within households, that should be true in the church. I know when uh, this doesn't happen very often, but, but on more than, than a few occasions, when I've become aware that one of you, and I, and I know you personally, and I, I know your kid, and there's a kid that's kind of gone off the rails, I, I, I'll ask your permission. And with that permission, sometimes I just send them a text message to their phone. It says almost the same thing every single time. This is Pastor Joel. Don't have to respond. You don't ever have to respond. But I want you to be able to anytime, any place. If you need to talk, if you need to vent, if you need counsel, if you need somebody to pray with you, if you get in a fix and somebody needs to come get you, I want you to know that I love you, your church family loves you, and we are here. Send. That's the kind of thing all of us need to be doing. And not just for our own kids, but for the friends of our, our kids, our, for, the, for the, the kids of our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ, whose hearts are breaking. Don't lecture these people about what they should be doing or shouldn't be doing. Embrace them. Many of them may not know what to do. But you've got to love them. When we strike that posture with our children, we are most like our Heavenly Father who waited on us, was patient with us, refused to ultimately and finally condemn us or give up on us, and who continued to pursue us until we came home. Love unconditionally. And then the last thing. Some of you are thinking, man, that stands your ground sounds tough. This one might actually be tougher. Give them to God. That one's tougher to me. Uh, I have, by God's grace, through the Holy Spirit, prophetic gifting. So the whole truth-telling thing has never really been an issue for me. But where I struggle, I, I like control. And how many of your moms and dads who've had several scenarios in raising those kids who came to the conclusion, I am out of control? Anybody? Yeah. This is not turning out the way I thought. They did not respond the way I thought they would. Why is there, you know, th this is more with, yeah, we, we had boys and we adopted a girl because apparently I'm from a family of boys who was from a family of boys. So if you want a kid without a Y chromosome, you got to do, so, do this some other way. And, and so Gracie came home and now all of a sudden, yeah, it was good for my wife who was at, up until that point living basically in a men's dorm. And now she gets a little extra estrogen to help her out. Uh, for me, I, was, I started learning all kinds of different stuff. Like, I don't understand why she does that. There are lots of words. My boys didn't talk quite this much. The drama is, I don't know why she's crying. Why is she crying? What's she going? What's your, you know, and I, I just, I'm looking for a flare gun. Like, I need help. Our kids teach us this stuff. 
Well, when they're rebellious, all that sense of control goes into overdrive, at least with some of us. And what's interesting is we know intuitively that what drives our guilt when our children rebel is that we're wearing a burden we were never meant to bear. Always asking, what did I do wrong? We're just, just killing ourselves with all the woulda, coulda, shoulda stuff. And we know this intuitively enough that we even lecture our kids about it. I told my kids, all three of them, before they came to Christ, and I would have opportunities to talk with them about the gospel. I would say, listen, the fact that your dad's a pastor means nothing to God. Nothing. You cannot ride my coattails into heaven. I can't even ride my own coattails into heaven. I don't have coattails. Jesus bled. That's how I get there. That's how you get there. Right? And we... And we we drill that into our children, and we tell them it is their decision. And we're going to respect the decisions that you make, but you need to understand, mom and dad believe this is the truth. There's going to come a time in your life as a teen or a young adult where you're going to ask, is my parents' faith my own? We want you to answer that with yes. We're going to love you either way, but we want you to answer that. That's the most important thing to mom and dad is that you would do that, but it is your Decision. You, not me, have to decide whether you are going to follow Jesus. But then the minute they make the wrong decision, it's like we forget all of that. It's harder for us to believe our own words, isn't it? It's more difficult. So I want you to remember something we learned the first week, very first week of this series. Our children are not ultimately ours. You remember that? They belong to the Lord who has decided to bless us with them. And so when your children break your heart, give them right back to the God who gave them to you in the first place. That's step number one. And remember when you do that this is the same God who took a terrorist on his way to Syria and powerfully transformed and changed him by the power of the gospel. And eventually he would write half of our New Testament, Saul of Tarsus. This is a man... This is a God who worked through a lying adulterer like Abraham and a deceiving trickster like Jacob and an adulterous murderer like David to bring about his global purposes on the earth and to bring all of those rebels to himself. And what was true of all of those men and all those characters in Scripture is true of you, it is true of me, and it is true of our kids. That God is mighty to save. He can turn them back. And so if you, if you feel like you're currently raising an Absalom, or you're watching Hophni and Phinehas make horrible decisions right in front of your eyes as an adult, you need to do the same thing that you did when they were little. Give them to the Lord. And if you've never done that, maybe this is the first time you do that. As an adult, you give them to the Lord. And pray the promises of the new covenant over them. Remember that what you are powerless to do, God can do. And, and the word of the Lord gave us this from hundreds of years before that new covenant was even sealed. Look at these words from Ezekiel and, and Jeremiah, respectively. The Lord, speaking through these prophets, says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes 
and be careful to obey my rules. You will want to do this now. You're not going to feel forced into anything. I'm going to tear that heart of stone out of you. I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh that is inclined toward me, that wants to obey me. And for my glory alone, you will walk in that path. And then we see that corresponding promise as well, uh, extrapolated more deeply in Jeremiah 31. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Listen, mom and dad, this is the only hope for your kid, because it was the only hope for you. And for me, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Paul put it this way in the New Testament. He said, when that happens in the heart of your child, this happens. The old has passed away. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is how you not have division in your home. You ask God to give a new heart to every member of that household and your children. It's what it looks like to give your children to God from the time you bring them home and you place them in that crib for the first time. And you get on your knees next to that crib and you put your hands on your child and you pray these words from Ezekiel and Jeremiah and you beg God, would you do this for my son and daughter? I believe you can do this for my son or for my daughter. And when they grow up and they willfully rebel, when addiction enslaves them, when sexual sin gives them the false high of happiness, when they choose fortune and fame rather than the Lord, remember these words and pray over that child and say, God, would you do this for my my rebellious child, would you bring them home? And church, we got to stand behind them when they do that. Stand behind them. Don't lecture them. Don't assume that they have done something wrong. Let's surround them with, with support. Let's surround them with prayer. And in fact, we're going to do that right now. I'm going to ask the musicians to come to the stage and they're going to begin playing. And in just a second, I'm going to ask you if you are a parent, still have a kid at home, and you could have a rebellious kid or everything could be working fine for you. That doesn't matter. I'm just going to ask all the parents, grandparents, if you're raising your grandkids, foster parents, single moms and dads, if that fits you, you got a kid right now. And then I will add to that if you've got somebody who's grown and they're gone and they're breaking your heart by the way they're living. Whatever, if you fit any of those narratives, let me ask you to stand right now. Just stand up and stay standing up. Don't be shy. For the rest of you, I just want you to look around. You know, I said earlier, you need to be here even if you're not a mom or a dad because you've got a role to play. Let me tell you what your role is as a non-parent to play right now. It is to pray. And so in just a minute, this music is going to start. I want you to find a group of four or five. I want you to go to those parents. I want you to put your hands on those parents. Ask them two very simple questions. Number one, what are your kids' names? And number two, how can I pray for these children? And pray for those, whether they're 40 years old or four years old, and you pray for those kids by name. And if there's anything else you want to share with that individual, you can. You certainly are not obligated to do that. But this is how we're going to start in this moment. We're going to stand behind moms and dads and grandparents and foster parents and single parents. Amen? That's what we're going to do. So right now, go ahead and find your place, and let's begin to pray with each other gathering groups of four or five. Let's pray all around this building. And then as God leads, once you're done, you can join those who lead us in worship as we close out in song. But let's pray together right now.
just a moment, we're going to be led in song. Please, by all means, continue to pray as the Spirit of God lets you pray. And as you get done, you can just turn and sing with those who lead us. Feel free to pray all the way through and even beyond the end of this service. Our children are that important. Would you bow with me, please? Father, may we cling to your words as they are revealed in Scripture, that your Holy Spirit that we have just sang about inspired. And may we do so with the same level of love that you as our Heavenly Father have demonstrated to us who never gave up, who always left the door open, who looked to the horizon, who was constantly pursuing us. We thank you for that love. Father, would you empower us as the body of Christ here to share that love more effectively with others? I believe you've led us to talk more and more about that particular issue as we get into the fall. People surrounded, surrounding us who, who know not of the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. And we've not shared it and what we need to share it. But may it begin in our own home with our own children. May we give them to you. Lord, as now we transition into this final act of worship as we share through our tithes and offerings a portion of what you have so richly gifted us with. Lord, we do it in faith, knowing that you will take what we give, which by comparison is a, a paltry sum, to say the least, compared to all of the riches of the universe, which all are yours. And yet, Lord, like the loaves and the fishes in the story in Matthew, we see this time and time again. You take those gifts and you multiply them and you blow our minds with what you accomplish through them. And so we give in faith that you will bless those gifts as you always have. But Lord, as pastor to those who supply those gifts, my prayer today is that you would, you would bless the givers richly, abundantly, and their children. I pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.